0: Hello, 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 good day, and welcome to another episode of After School History. I am, as always, your genial host, Anthony J. Ashtino. And today, I wanted to uh, conclude our discussion of the war in Europe, of the uh, fighting that took place on both the Eastern and Western Fronts, uh, and, you uh, well, the Southern Front with Italy. I mean, certainly there was there was warfare going on there to, to a much lesser degree but uh where where we left off i believe uh and i'll i'll i'm going to repeat a little bit of stuff here just to to catch people up um germany after the loss in uh stalingrad where army group south was destroyed in 1942 43 the beginning of 1943 that was bad um germany still had enough forces to launch an offensive in 43 and they did at Kursk, okay? The attempt was to um, pinch off a salient, or uh, if you can imagine, the, the Russians, the Soviets, had a little bit of a, of, um, um, they, they had penetrated a little bit into German territory. The idea was to cut it off and hopefully destroy a bunch of Soviet divisions. And the idea with Hitler, you know, Hitler was talking with some of his, uh, you know, high-ranking members was that, well, look, if we can manage to bloody the Soviets again, we might be able to make a deal with Stalin. Stalin was the only one that they thought they could make a deal with. Certainly, Roosevelt and Churchill and uh, de Gaulle, to a lesser degree, were not going to uh, make any kind of a peace treaty with Hitler. Hitler. But he felt he might be able to do it with Stalin. But in order to do it, Hitler felt that he had to, you know, inflict a very significant defeat on the gun to show them that Germany was still, uh, you know, uh, had the capabilities to do it. So, Kursk, 1943, the Germans attacked. Um, it, It was fairly successful in the beginning. The main problem was that the Soviets knew the attack was coming, and they basically plotted uh, a defense in depth. I mean, they had forces going back. My, they had uh, what a seven defensive rings. And so the Germans attacked. They just kept on penetrating and penetrating and penetrating. But they couldn't ever reach that breakthrough. And if you really think about it, the whole crux of uh, the German... And it's funny here. <clears throat> people talk about the Blitzkrieg. Blitzkrieg was never used by the Germans, okay? Uh, German offensive planning, and this is for those of you, and, and maybe there's one or two of you out there who are really into the whole, like, well, what was the uh, you know, whole point here? Um, German, and to a lesser degree, Prussian, um, you know, in World War I, it was the Prussians who dominated things, uh, offensive uh, capabilities and offensive planning was structured around a war of mobility, the idea was to outmaneuver enemy forces. It wasn't to overwhelm them. That could happen, certainly, if they had the numbers. But the idea was to to basically outmaneuver their enemies. And in World War I, it wasn't as easy because in World War I, you know, you, you basically had infantry and horse-drawn, you know, artillery. But by World War II, you had tanks, you had aircraft, you had the ability to outmaneuver them. So the entire German philosophy was based upon this, you know what, we'll basically do a pincer movement, we'll surround them on both sides, we'll cut them off, and then we'll annihilate them. And they had done it many times in the past, and to great success. And they were doing it again in Kursk, except that the Soviets kind of, by that point, knew what was going on. As I mentioned last time, one of the major reasons that the, the war in the East turned on the Germans was that... Towards 42, 43, Stalin started letting the generals do the planning. uh, And he started taking a back seat because he realized they knew what the heck they were doing. And Stalin, uh, and if you don't believe me, go look up his military record. He did not know. He was not that good. So um, Stalin let these guys do what they do best. And their whole thing was... Uh, We're going to invite the Germans in. We're going to let them penetrate. We're going to let them come all the way in. And then we're going to counterattack. And we're going to counterattack. And then we're going to go with deep penetration, with deception. Okay? What the Soviets were very good at. And so they did. And the the Germans lost at Kursk. Okay? They suffered tremendous losses. Uh, It was one of the greatest tank battles of all time. But they suffered tremendous losses, and the Soviets went on the offensive. And then what the Soviets did was they launched Operation Bagration, which was an offensive that relied on deception and speed, and it basically suckered in the Germans. And it resulted in the annihilation of Germany's Army Group Center. They lost Army Group South, pretty much, with Stalingrad, Army Group center was defeated in fact, as far as casualties go, um, they probably lost more in this battle or in the in the operation than they did at stalingrad. But the Soviets obliterated the Germans, okay they were deceptive the Germans thought that the battle was co- that the offensive was coming in somewhere else. they were wrong, and the Soviets absolutely ran over them and from that point on out. Really, it came down then to how quickly could the Soviets move their logistics forward. The Germans were done. They were done in the East. Now, couple that with the fact that in the West, in 1944, there was D-Day, the Allied landings. And again, the Allied landings, As I, I believe I talked about this before, it came down to, you know, Could the Germans have beaten them off? Eh, it's possible. We don't know. There's the whole thing, oh, well, Hitler was sleeping and they didn't release the Panzers, you know. Even if they had, it's questionable about whether the Panzers alone could have managed to turn the tide. But the bottom line was that the Allies landed, and once they landed, that was it. And all of the high-ranking German officers knew that was it. I mean, these guys weren't dumb. These guys weren't fanatics. The way that a lot of the, the the Nazi party was. They weren't the type of guys that believed, oh, you know, we've got we've got five divisions against, you know, 250 Russian divisions. Is that all they can throw at us? No. These guys knew. And so at that point it became a situation where you know some high-ranking German officers decided that it would be best to kill Hitler. Now, mind you, with the assassination attempt, and there's a movie, Operation Valkyrie. That was the name of the, the uh, assassination attempt. They put a bomb in, you know, near Hitler. He moved to one side of the desk, as we all know. The, one of his adjutants moved the bomb from one side of the desk to the other. Hitler lived. <clears throat> but the, the, the interesting thing about this, and this is why I am hesitant to portray a lot of these guys as heroes... The reality is that they had no real intention of stopping the war or of giving up any of their stuff. Their idea was that, okay, we kill Hitler, and then we'll form a new government. And then we're going to seek a peace treaty. But the peace treaty didn't have an intention of the Germans relinquishing territories they'd won. There was no idea of the Germans giving up parts of the, the former Soviet Union that they had captured or Poland or Czechoslovakia, or Austria, or even parts of France. The idea was that it would be like, all right, listen, we got rid of Hitler, now let's have a peace. Let's everyone stop killing one another. So, you know, it, was, it wasn't it was really this kind of ultra-heroic thing. I mean, granted, any time you try and kill a Hitler, that's a good thing. Okay, we, we applaud that. But, as it turned out, it didn't kill him, and then uh, you know i'll save you all the gory details if you want to read up on them. Go ahead. But the bottom line was that everyone who was uh anyone ended up getting killed. I believe I talked in the last episode about Rommel uh being taken out to his car, being given the choice between you know the people's court um so you can go back and listen to that episode if you're if you're so inclined. Uh, to learn the realities about that. But the bottom line is that Germany started collapsing on the East and the West. Now, at this point, Hitler gave orders to basically destroy everything, scorched earth policy. And thankfully, there were a lot of guys who said, no, we're not going to do this, okay? And the Allies, once they broke out in Normandy, it was a race to the Rhine. Uh, You know, the only thing stopping them were basically the lack of gasoline and the Soviets were, you know, they were, they were mounting their offensives. Now, what happened next was very interesting because there was talk afterwards about what would happen to Germany after aftermath of the war. Now, this is very interesting here because Germany was going to be split up. Now, on the one hand, there were some who believed that Germany should basically be de-industrialized, disindustrialized. English majors can send me a strongly worded letter about But the idea was that Germany would basically be turned into an agrarian state They would have all their industrial capacities taken away from them Okay, And that was one idea The other idea was simply Germany was going to be split up Into different zones of influence And that's what ended up happening But here comes the entertaining part and the part that would cause a lot of issues in the next 20 to 40 years. So the Soviet Union, Stalin was convinced that, because of his paranoia, Stalin was convinced that the Allies, the Western Allies, would never, ever withdraw to what they had been allotted. And again, there's a saying that we have, it's very useful in the United States today, Every accusation is a confession. The reason Stalin didn't believe that the Allies would keep their word is because he never intended to keep his word. Stalin never kept his word about anything. Never. I mean, look up everything he's ever done. Never was any of his word kept. And so he assumed that everyone else operated, as many dictators do, as many authoritarians do, they assume that everyone else operates on their own you know, a business schedule. So he was like, listen, you have to take Berlin. Now, Eisenhower and, and, and company, Eisenhower was the, the uh, supreme commander of Allied forces. Eisenhower was like, yeah, by the way, first of all, Berlin is in the Soviet sphere of influence. Second of all, if I wanted to take Berlin, it would probably cost a few hundred thousand casualties. I have no intention of doing that. Why would I lose 200,000 more Allied soldiers for the sake of taking a place that's going to go over to another country anyway? Yeah, no thank you. Not to mention the fact that given the way that Western powers looked at human life, uh, had Eisenhower tried to do it, he probably would have been fired. I mean, it would have been a ridiculous amount The Soviets lost a couple hundred thousand casualties taking Berlin. Now, in fairness, taking Berlin was a fair price for what they had suffered during the war. The Soviet Union, the Russian people had suffered ridiculous casualties. As I have mentioned before, 9 out of every 10 German dead died on the Eastern Front. And the losses of of the the Soviet Union in both lives and in their the property and everything is ridiculous. I mean they lost as many as twenty million people. What a number. What a number. Twenty million. The Germans were intended to fight a war of annihilation against them, and they did. And the Soviets, yes, okay, they, they had a lot of guys, you know, and, and in the beginning, admittedly, you know, they were just like, listen, it's just throw 20,000 guys at this position. Eventually, they'll take it, yeah, we're going to lose 15,000. Well, the remaining 5,000 will take it. But that's, that's what the Soviet thing was. So, the Soviets ended up coming into Berlin. The Germans fought as best they could with delaying actions. Uh, but after the Battle of Silo Heights, uh, the the Germans were basically done. There was nothing stopping the Soviets from encircling Berlin, which they did. And then it became a case of, well, how long can we keep this up? And then it starts getting interesting because from the German perspective, the question starts becoming, well, we're going to lose Berlin. What what are we going to do? What's going to happen to the state? Now, there were many who advised Hitler to flee Berlin and go down to Bavaria, to the mountains, where they had, they could have continued a fight. I mean, the mountain area, you know, provided much better defensive uh, positioning. They had resources down there buried in the mountains. Uh, They could have, with Hitler alive, they they might have been able to. Hitler was under no illusions. He was like, nope, I'm fighting it out in Berlin, or that's that. And many of the Nazis then at that point, the top-ranking Nazis, were looking for an excuse to get out but not to make it look like they were looking for an excuse. They didn't want Hitler to think that they were fleeing. Um but they were they were all trying to to get the heck out of Dodge because they realized that it was just a matter of time as the Soviets continued in. The Germans relied on basically a few divisions of the, uh, you know, just army units and then the SS had a division or two here or there. Um, and then they had the Volksturm, which was basically anyone who was between the ages of 15 and 70, uh, you know, and they would be like, all right, here's a, you know, we got this rifle from, you know, 1875. Uh, yeah, you know, you have to uh, put powder in it before you fire it, but, you know, when the Soviets come out. Now, the one thing the Germans did, they did have something called the Panzerfaust, and this was a very ingenious weapon. It was a small weapon. It was a one-shot weapon. It was a bazooka, for those of you who know the bazookas. But it's over the shoulder, and then young kids would run up, fire one of these at the Russian tanks, throw the weapon down, and then run away. It would penetrate most Russian armor at the time that was coming in. So the idea was, you knock out a tank, and then run away. The Russians started putting tanks in there, you know, to help knock out German positions, well, the Russians adapted to it after a little while. I mean, it, you know, the Germans knocked out hundreds and hundreds of Russian tanks, but for every Russian tank they knocked out, ten more came in, and eventually the Russians started putting infantry ahead of the tanks to basically take out any potential Panzerfaust situations. And as these were usually young children, you know, the Hitler the Hitler Youth, that were going to do it. You know, the Russians would just knock them out and the tanks would be able to continue. So, as things got towards the end, and there's a fantastic movie called uh Drang, Downfall, okay, uh, about the last days in the bunker, um, Hitler decided he was going to um, marry his longtime mistress, Eva Braun, and then he was going to kill himself because he knew, and this was not yeah, this this was absolutely 100% true. Hitler knew that what would happen is if the Russians had captured him there would be a show trial in Moscow. I mean, they would drag him before the judges and it would be an international incident. So he was determined he was going to kill himself. Um he tested out the cyanide pill on his dog, Blondie, German Shepherd. It worked. And so in the days before the, the, the Russians basically took over the area where the bunker is, um, <clears throat> you know, Hitler married Ava Brown and then, you know, made his last will and testament. And then him and Ava, you know, they had a wedding party and then eventually they retired to their suite where Eva uh, Brown committed suicide by uh, ingesting cyanide. Hitler bit down on a cyanide capsule and then shot himself uh, through the mouth. And that was that. Now, there are a lot of conspiracy theories about this. Believe me, if you go and look online, you'll find a lot of them. Hitler wasn't really dead. He escaped Berlin. The reality is that everyone in the bunker confirmed that they saw the body. They they talked to him. He went into the freaking bedroom. They heard the gun shot. They came in. And then they took him upstairs uh, into the Reich's Chancellery Garden and they poured petrol all over him and David Brown's body and they lit it on fire Uh, and then Russian shelling stopped them. The Russians eventually, when they came in and took over the Reichstag and the Reich's Chancellery, they determined that it was Hitler based on his dental records. Now what happened next is subject to a little bit of uh, questioning, but the reality is that um, you know, Hitler's body was eventually kept for a while by the Soviets. Um, you know, uh, Stalin kept on giving this whole, he might still be alive, he might still be alive, because he wanted to keep that that threat going for the West. But the reality is that Hitler died, he killed himself. Everyone around there knew what happened. They all saw it. Um, many of his high-ranking... Uh, officials tried to escape or did escape or had already escaped, um, and they went up to Flensburg, which is in the north, because he had named Karl Dönitz, the head of the Navy, the Kriegsmarine, as the next, um, the successor, uh, after he had gotten pissed off at basically everyone else, including the army, he blamed the army for everything, you know. And uh, what's the old saying I used to remember from ESPN? A good craftsman never blames his tools. Well, Hitler blamed the army for everything. They had betrayed him. They had uh, completely, you know, uh, at every step they had gone against him. Um, you know, I guess you could say Hitler basically at the end might have said, uh, I don't take responsibility for anything uh, because he didn't. He, he never took responsibility. The only thing he took responsibility for were the positive moments in the war. Um, that was it. So uh, Hitler's body ended up being pulverized and then spread into the river uh, somewhere uh, in Germany. To this day, we're not 100% sure, but the bottom line is that they didn't want to put a burial ground because they were really concerned that it would become something that people went to. Neo-Nazis would go to the, the grave of Hitler. I mean, can you imagine... Uh, a a better place for, you know, right-wing people, fascists, neo-Nazis. If you actually had a cemetery place for Hitler, they would have all gone there. So, fortunately, the Soviets were smarter than that, and and everyone else was. Um, The rest of the guys after the war, um, which ended shortly after Hitler's suicide, uh, there were the Nuremberg Trials. And the Nuremberg Trials were called the Nuremberg Trials because they were held in Nuremberg. Again, historians... We don't like to particularly get terribly crafty if we can name something after something easy. So what happened was the Nuremberg trials were the trials of all the major Germans that had lived. Now, a couple of guys, Martin Bormann, um, died trying to escape the bunker. Um, Many people had killed themselves. Hermann Goering, though, was captured. Um, Many of the major guys, Keitel, Jodl, Speer, uh, major German figures were all captured, and the idea was that they were going to put them on trial for war crimes. Now, this had never been done before. It had been talked about after the first world War. Uh, but it, it never got pushed forward. The idea was, you know what? it's over. let's just let's just move on here. But after World War II, because it was so darned bloody, and especially, especially after the Holocaust, I mean, when the the Holocaust became apparent, people lost their minds. And rightly so. Rightly so. People that came upon... I mean, granted, the Soviets were the ones that came upon most of the death camps. But even the Western allies who came upon concentration camps and coming upon finding hundreds of bodies, you know, people living in absolute filth and squalor, You know, in talking about why they had gone... One of the best episodes, if you ever get the chance to watch Band of Brothers... I mean, the entire... Look, the entire series is phenomenal. So, first of all, I'm going to say, watch the whole darn series. But second of all, if you can't... If you don't have that time... And I get it. Some people don't. watch Watch the episode about the death camps where they find the concentration camps. Okay. And Germans came in after that. Uh, I didn't know about that. Nobody knew. I was just following orders. That was the big thing. Okay, I was following orders. Listen, it wasn't my fault. I was following orders. In the military, when you're given an order, you do this. And, and that's true in the military. It is true. You know, if, if someone, your superior, gives you, all right, here's what we're going to do. Go do this. However... There came the point where they were like, no, no. You know what? It's in a moral order. You cannot follow this. And I know a lot of people today, right-wingers are like, oh, they would have been killed. They would have this and that. No, no. If enough of them had stood up at one point and been like, no, we're not doing this. No. We're not going to send these people to their death. We're not going to have concentration camps. And again, I'm going to talk about this when I do my Holocaust episode you would have had you would have had a very different outcome to the Holocaust if enough people had said, "Screw you, we're not going to do this." And it was you know again, it wasn't just Jews; it was Soviet prisoners of war, Jehovah's Witnesses. It was it was a whole you know gays and lesbians and transsexuals, transgender. It was people that were socialists. Uh, it, it was a terribly uh, large number of people. Uh, but a lot of these guys, and no, you know that's it, you know we were we were this and that um now, at the end of the day, I think it was eleven of them were hanged for crimes against humanity, um and a lot more of them were sentenced to jail. Unfortunately, the jail sentences ended up getting commuted for, for the most part of like, you're gonna go twenty years in jail, and five years later, it was like all right you can you can go free um but You know, for the most part, some of them escaped. Dr. Joseph Mengele escaped. The man who experimented on individuals, especially twins. He's very fond of twins. In Auschwitz. And then Adolf Eichmann, who escaped, lived in uh, Argentina for many years before. uh, The Israelis, who again... If you're going, if you're determined to, uh, pardon my language on this, but if you're determined to piss off one group of people, the Israelis are not the ones you want to do it to. And especially with this, um, you know, they were determined to find these guys. Because after the war, obviously for the first couple of years, everyone's like, they punished the Germans. but Then after five, six years, all of a sudden it became, listen, we're not that worried about Germans. We're more worried about the Soviets. And by that time, Israel was a country, and they were like, "Well, we're we're still kind of, we're still kind of interested in what happens to these Germans." And then I was like, "Well, Israel, if you're that concerned, you can go and find them yourself." And the Israelis were like, "Hold my beer, challenge accepted." Okay, and they went after them. And Eichmann, I mean, that was one of the great accomplishments of any intelligence agency it's just so impressive i tell you i tip my hat i'm not always the biggest fan of israeli intelligence but the bottom line is i tipped my hat on that one um and they found him and they brought him back to israel and then they gave him a trial they afforded him defense defense counsel could call witnesses they gave him the ability to make arguments. I mean, this is this is a person, Adolf Eichmann, who was responsible for orchestrating the Holocaust for the most part. He had the blood of millions of Jews on his hand. And the Israelis were like, all right, well, listen, before we do anything to you, let me give you uh, the right to a, a fair and free trial, which it was. Now, the evidence was so overwhelming that of course, he was found guilty. And I don't know you'd be like, well, they were always going to find him guilty. You know what? If they were always going to find him guilty, then why did they manage to spend the time allowing him to call witnesses in, allowing the defense to make arguments? His argument was basically the following. I was given orders, okay? When you're given orders, you don't argue the orders. You don't say this is not right. That's not right. But the bottom line is that that got shot down completely in the aftermath of the Holocaust. Today, in the military, just following orders is not an excuse. It's not an excuse. You cannot defend yourself by saying, but I was following orders. And so eventually Eichmann was hanged. Mangala, um, unfortunately, ended up dying, uh, you know, a free man in Argentina. Um, you know, he was apparently swimming and he suffered a massive stroke um, and died... But, uh, you know, a lot of Germans tried to escape. Some were more successful than others. Many of them got hanged. Göring, Hermann Göring, the head of the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force during World War II, uh, he um, committed suicide by poison. Himmler committed suicide. He wasn't even, he wasn't even on trial. Göring, at least, they brought to trial, where he did a very good job defending himself and basically saying, yeah, of course you're going to convict me. You won. If we had won, we would be putting you on trial and convicting you, you know. um, There's something to be said about that. Not that I agree with him, mind you. I'm just saying that, you know, you can make this argument that, you know, the winners, you know, he basically said, look, the winners always get to determine, you know, who won and who didn't. So that was that with Germany. Um, All the major guys, you know, Hitler committed suicide. Many of his top adjutants committed suicide. And then that was that. Uh, you know, the Allies took over, they divided Germany uh, into multiple zones. There was a, a German, uh, East German zone, which was the Soviets had, and then in what would become West Germany, the United States, Great Britain, and France had uh, a zone. Eventually, that would divide into two Germanies. The German Democratic Republic, which would be a communist, uh, you know, Russian-allied uh, zone and then the German, uh, the the Federal German Republic, which would be uh, allied with the United States and the West. Uh, Berlin, Berlin was divided into two sides. On the one side, again, you had uh, the pro Russian side, and on the that was the East, and the Western side was the uh, Allied side. Now, this was, by the way, this was all within East Germany. So, even if you were in West Berlin, you were still in East Germany, okay? And you couldn't exactly just drive your car, you know, to uh, the Netherlands. And as we'll see when I talk about the Cold War at one point, uh, you know, they talk about what was going on, the Berlin airlift and whatever, uh, this would cause a lot of issues. But for the time being, you know what? Nazism was dead. Hitler was dead. World War II was over. Uh, the Germans signed an uh, unconditional surrender treaty. And basically everyone that signed it was ended up being executed. Keitel and Jodl ended up being uh, hanged along with a bunch of other Germans. So that was that. Uh, and the idea was that there was going to be some kind of peace in Europe. Now, the war in the Pacific was still going. And the United States, as much as we were excited about what was going on in Europe, the United States was still determined to pursue victory in Japan uh, above all things. And that's what we're going to talk about the next time. We're going to talk about the end of the war in the Pacific. And we're going to talk about uh, the first nuclear war, or nuclear, as uh, George Bush used to say. It's pretty funny. Uh, but we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how the United States managed to finish that one off. Um, and MacArthur, MacArthur, who became essentially the most powerful man in the world at one point um, for for a brief amount of time. Uh, he would argue with you he was always the most powerful man in the world uh, because that's the kind of man MacArthur was. But we're going to talk about that the next time. We're going to talk about that. But in, in Europe, the war's over. Huzzah, huzzah. You know, six years of absolutely devastating war, you know, 60 million people are dead. Most of Europe is in ruins, ruins, as they say. Uh, and then we have to see what, and, and now this alliance between the United States and the Soviet Union or the Western allies and the Soviet Union, well, now you've gotten rid of your main problem. So you either to still be buddies or now that you gotten rid of them, what about the Soviets? What do what they have to say about things? Indeed, what do we have to say about them? So, we'll talk about that in future. Uh, anyway, in the meantime, if you have any comments, questions, things you want to say, uh, things you want me to address, please do by all means feel free to send me over something. Again, I'm always on Instagram every night at Antonius Optimus After School History. I'm always posting up something entertaining about what's going on in the world, what went on in the world today in 1209, in 1885, in 1980, you know, whatever it is, and I'll continue to do that. In the meantime, I hope everyone's staying safe, and I hope everyone's keeping their heads up. We just started school again, Um, so for those of you who are listening to me and are back in school, my my, uh, students who are listening to me and are actually in my own school, and also those who have graduated and still listen to me and are now going into high school um, and are going into second year. And, and in fact, with some of you guys, my God, going into third year of high school. Um, please be smart, stay safe, do your work. And uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much about it for me. So anyway, until the next time that we talk, please do listen to my podcast. And if you enjoy it, please recommend it to someone else. As I've said before, I am so thankful we've gotten over a thousand listens and we're all over the world. We're in over 22 countries. We're in about 30 states right now. Uh, Ash's army is just growing. It's growing and growing and growing and that's the way we like it. Until we talk again, my friends. Bye bye.